Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey everybody, it's Erin Carey, and today we are diving into the world of postpartum depression. And I am so excited that we're going to talk about this. This is something that I've wanted to discuss for a while. And so I'm bringing onto the show Walker Ladd, PhD. She has been a thought leader in the field of maternal mental health for nearly two decades. Her writing and research challenge paradigms of motherhood and mental illness using women's stories to reveal the hidden truths and extraordinary dimensions of the lived experience of motherhood. Dr. Ladd's personal experience with traumatic childbirth, breast cancer, postpartum depression, and major depressive disorder drive her passion for her bold, soulful, and transformative work. Today, we will be discussing this work along with her groundbreaking book, Transformed by Postpartum Depression, Women's Stories of Trauma and Growth. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm honored to be here. This is going to be such a good conversation because in our country, postpartum depression is continuing to rise. And I hate to say that there's a stigma because I think sometimes when we say that there's a stigma, it almost makes the stigma worse, right? <laughs> like just by naming it as a stigma. But I, I do want to mention that we see in statistics, one in five women are going to experience this. Yeah. And that's only one in five that are being reported. So what's going on there? Why are we seeing such a gap in treatment? Oh, such a great question. And I don't, I wish I knew the answer. There would be a lot more healthy, healthy moms out there. Uh, I was just doing a presentation at a conference and I realized in one of my slides, Erin, that it's, that I could have used the same statistic in the slide that I did 20 minutes ago that I did 20 years ago. And we haven't really grown in in we in being able to treat the prevalence rates. I think that there are multiple areas. One of which you already targeted, and that's stigma. Uh, I think that the stigma of mental illness for mothers, in particular, is one of the most powerful stigmas about mental illness that exist. Even more so. For women of color who yeah. experience mental illness around the, the around childbirth. So stigma is huge. I think that what I, I through my work tend to lean towards is I think that we have only looked at certain dimensions of it and that those dimensions have mostly been the medical and you know, as the side version of the medical, we've looked at the obstetric and we've looked at the psychiatric. And I don't think we've quite done enough to get women's experiences um, into the minds and the offices of doctors and care providers 
Yeah. So we're we're speaking different languages a lot of the time. Yeah, and I I want you know because there are so many cases that do go undiagnosed and do mm. go untreated most. or most you you would say most. most. Yeah, I would say that the literature says that fifty percent go untreated. Wow. And that's, wow. I mean that's a stable number. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. You know, and I'll just say, even from personal experience, a good friend of mine experienced postpartum, postpartum depression. And when she was going through it, she didn't want to tell me about it because mm-hmm. I always, I was the first one in my friend group to have a baby. And I kind of always painted a picture of, oh, this is wonderful. This is a great time. And for me, I was, I have a, my own mental <laughs> health issues for sure. But for some reason during that period, I was okay. And so almost in a, like a reverse stigma way, she didn't, she didn't want to tell me because she thought that I had such a good experience that I wouldn't understand. And I thought, man, we can't even have honest conversations with, with people that we know care about us and that we care about because this is so hard to deal with. And yeah, yeah. that experience, uh, speaks to me on a number of levels. It says that she knew somehow this woman had been thought and knew that it was a taboo subject. And that even with those she loved, that she had to face the taboo subject in order to be understood and not feared. See, that's what stigma does. Mm-hmm. Stigma is that re- social reflex that and personal reflex to other anything that is out of the norm. So stigma theory coming from the work of Gottman back in the 50s and 60s, it's that we perceive something different than what we have been taught it to be normal. We have a tendency to move away from it and to fear it. And I don't know if you know this, but Rosalind Carter uh, was, she's one of my heroes. She was on the forefront of, stigma awareness and and really leading advocacy for mental illness. Hmm. She had, you know, speaks about stigma as a way that in a way that is so eloquent. She says um, basically that stigma is comes from a place where we fear mental illness as being violent. Our personal safety is at risk if we're around someone mentally ill. That's what that stigma for anybody listening who's ever take, you know, if you've ever taken care of a child, think about the time you took care of a child and how maybe you're at the park and there are a bunch of moms and parents and playing and you're taking care of that child. If anyone at the park perceives you doing anything slightly different out of the norm of what everybody at the part silently but together has decided is normal, you would be aware of every breath that you took. And that's so much of the experience for moms. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. And I I think it's such a timely topic to be talking about the stigma of mental illness. This ties in. Actually, this is a really great time to thank our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Talkspace. And, you know, like there's right now we're in the middle of a time. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world and that can lead to depression, anxiety, 
or just scary thoughts that for me, I know they're hard to turn off. I have never been more grateful to have a therapist who helps me navigate all those different feelings that come up. And it's amazing how much better things can feel when I have that unbiased licensed professional there to listen. Now, Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and so much more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. Now, what I love about Talkspace, it is affordable. It's just a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. And as I mentioned already, it's a huge network of licensed therapists in over 40 different specialties, and it is secure and private using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of this podcast, you will get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com, that's T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E.com, or download the app. Be sure to use the code SPARKINGWHOLENESS to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's SPARKINGWHOLENESS and Talkspace.com. Now, we're talking about stigma with mental health, especially as it relates to motherhood and postpartum depression and anxiety. And it does seem like we do fear anything that doesn't appear normal. I say that in air quotes on the outside. And when things don't go as expected, we do struggle. And there is a little bit of even trauma there, whether it's, you know, postpartum, breastfeeding, even labor and delivery. So what do you think is driving this idea of what is normal for motherhood and beyond? And and where does that come from? I think what drives it is attachment theory. Almost with you and the work of John Bowlby, it came at a time in um, United States history where, you know, it was post-World War II. So in World War II, a lot of women were in the workforce. And right around then, John Bowlby did this study about maternal deprivation and presented at the World Health Organization. And that began this sense of women really need to pay more attention to not depriving their child of some sort of affection and attention and interaction. And it stuck in the psyche of America that it, that maternal deprivation, A, was a real thing. B, that it caused incredible injury really long time in the psychiatric literature. They referenced schizophrenia as directly related to a mom, not in terms of genetics, but in terms of her pathological behavior. So I think his Bowlby's, and you might get a lot of hate comments on this, but you know, we've learned that is attachment real? Yes, but it doesn't necessarily have to be from a woman. It doesn't necessarily come in one shape, way, or form. Think about the um, amazing parents that are adoptive parents, their ability to demonstrate connection and safety to a child comes. They learn it, they do it, they feel it. I think that somewhere around somewhere around the 50s, Erin, we we bought hook, line, and sinker, along with pediatrics, along with obstetrics, that 
we that you know mothers have a tremendous amount of power <laughs> and not and that power needs to be watched and it needs to be monitored and it needs to be developed and moms need to stay home so they left that workforce and went back to being mostly uh, home yeah that i mean that makes a lot of sense and it's it's something that <laughs> we see all all throughout even now and how we interact and all the different i mean there's so many different opinions on different things and so yeah that makes a lot of sense now it, I do want to get to this idea of that you mentioned in your book of postpartum lasting um, even beyond the first year, because sometimes we think of postpartum as just, oh, like the first six weeks or the first, you know, we, we think of it as just a short little time period. But I mean, just yesterday, I, I read an article about a mom with a 21 month old that oh, yeah. committed suicide and oh. took the child with her. And like, I hate hearing stories like that. And of course, right now, we have a lot of people experiencing mental health concerns for all sorts of reasons. But my first thought there was, did she have postpartum that went untreated? You know, and if so, like, what's the time period there? Do we have, is there an ending time frame? Is it, what do you say to that? You know, isn't it? First of all, that I just want to acknowledge what you guys said. When we lose moms, it, it comes really to the core. So anyone listening who's heard about that story, just send some light out into the universe about helping other moms not have to go down that, that path. I think that, you know, again, this begs the question, why do we have to look for a number? When is it over? When does it start? That's that's a medical model. That's a disease-based medical model. You start a temperature, you end a temperature. You start a certain birth weight, you end up a certain in There are these beginnings and ends that we have a tendency to believe as real. And what we've learned with postpartum depression is that it's actually perinatal. We kind of grew in our understanding so around the time of childbirth so science has said hey it happens in pregnancy so now society believes that it happens in pregnancy and then there was this huge kerfuffle in the psychiatric community about this onset when is the onset is it four weeks after after you have the baby is it six weeks how long does it last well right now the dsm says you have an occurrence of major depressive disorder that starts after birth, six weeks, and between six weeks and a year. So technically, if a mom who's 22 months out had that definition in front of her and went to her doctor, the doctor would say, well, you're not within the year, so this must be something different. However, some good, new, solid research has come out, has identified that there's a spectrum of, of time that postpartum depression using the same tools that we use now to test and to screen can be detected as far as three years out. So I just did a study about how women who had postpartum depression in the past, up to 13 years in the past, how they remembered it, how they reflect on it now. And it's the first time I've looked at this compared to when I work with moms who have had this experience more recently, and the descriptions are the same. Hmm. Wow. Same symptoms, the same delay to treatment, the same 
horrible darkness and confusion and sense of falling into a black hole. So maybe if my hope is that if if women like you and, and others listening and the more we can encourage our sisters and moms and daughters to know the language of how a doctor is going to be talking to them about their mental health, we could do it ourselves. Yeah. About if you're a little one in the background. Yeah. So I oh, that's a, one of mine. <laughs> yep. I, can you imagine this is this idea called the a reproductive life model? So my daughter's 17. And I would have loved for her to have had the experience where her pediatrician right around concrete knowledge, formal operational stage, say age seven, started talking to her about things like mood yeah. and explaining it. And then explaining it to parents and explaining that moods go up and down. And then in like in age appropriate ways across her lifespan, gave her that information. Now the only thing she has are stories that she's heard from my research, what I've tried to give her. And then my goodness, if you go in and you're 17, you're a young adult and you're trying to get some reproductive care and you say, well, my mom had postpartum depression, you know, there's that stigma. Mm-hmm. Understandably, because we do need to be more, more supportive of, of women who have a family history, but it should have been normalized along the way and yeah. for boys too. Yeah. Yeah. And the way we talk about it makes such a difference. And just, I don't think that I mean, and this kind of maybe would go into a different topic, but I don't think that our children, we're not taught how to deal with emotions. And it's maybe especially boys. I think we kind of shut down their emotions even more like, you know, don't cry. I'll give you something to cry about. That whole language is so, so destructive. Um, But I I do think, yeah, there's something about adjusting the way we talk about things early on that can make such a difference in, in how things are treated later. Totally. I mean, I think what motivates me is I think about like the story you just shared of a mom who lost her life and her child's life. You know, if you're in an emergency situation, you need to know CPR. Yeah. So a lot of us know CPR. We're required to learn it because at school, if you're a teacher, you know CPR. Well, we know CPR because we take the time to learn it and we know the language of what those letters mean, CPR. But if you're in a mental illness crisis, we don't have the techniques, we don't have the language. I think that the more we can identify our symptoms in the same language that our doctors need to hear it so that we can get CPR. Yeah. We need to be able to say, I haven't eaten, I have no interest in the things that I usually like, no appetite. I'm having thoughts of harming myself and it's lasted beyond two weeks and it's starting to cause me distress and dysfunction. You give that to a doctor and they don't treat you. You're going into an ER hemorrhaging and they don't put a tourniquet on. Arm yourself with that language. That's good because I think a lot of women experience symptoms and brush them aside. Well, I'm tired, but I I haven't slept, you know, I'm not getting any sleep. So of course I'm tired, or of course I don't have any energy to do anything. I can't fit into my clothes right now. You know, like what is that about women making, almost making excuses for these symptoms? Like, oh, it's not that bad. It's just because of this. What do you think? To go back to number one. Yeah. (laughs) 
Makes a lot of sense. And it gets enforced and reinforced from our mom groups and our partners and our siblings and parents and intergenerationally. And if, I mean, I remember when I um, was pregnant with my son, who's now 20, my mom who had had postpartum depression and her mom had had it and her mom had had Mm. it. I was on the phone with my mom and she said, I'm worried about you getting postpartum depression. And that was the end of the conversation. And it was left for me to be like, I'm worried about you getting cancer. It, it wasn't like, this is, I'm worried about you. So make sure you tell your doctor that I had it. And this is what I did. Because maybe the other thing is that we tell women to be so bending, so easily bendable and accommodating and self-sacrificing to attach to that baby. So much so that we minimize ourselves completely. Mm-hmm. We yeah. become invisible. Mm-hmm. And I think many women feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. And and then, you know, as we're talking about the language and, and all of this, and even you mentioned perinatal instead of postpartum, and you say in your book that postpartum is rooted in 17th, 18th century patriarchal dialect. I kind of want to get into that and then how... And what that's about and how can we shift and update the language? When you read that, what did you think? Was it like, oh my God, this woman's crazy or she's got an agenda or? No, I just thought it was interesting. I'd never thought about it that way before. You know, it was just, it was kind of a reframing of, of, and I I personally, I love that. I love thinking about things in a different way, but I'd, I'd love to know more about that. Well, what I wanted to do when I started looking at this is knowing, okay, who came up with this stuff? <laughs> and then it takes a long look back at history. And basically, bottom line is that the, the people who were there to help a woman have a baby have been the people to call postpartum depression or any mood disorder what it is. So it's always been rooted around the care provider charged with taking care of a woman having a baby. And that means... Um, now it means OBGYNs or midwives, but in the past, it's always been a medical professional. Obstetricians are actually surgeons. So if, if you can imagine all roads lead to who's looking at the woman having the baby. And in our history, since basically since Hippocrates, who was an, an attendant at birth, it's been a physician and usually a male physician and usually a physician or of someone in power. And it's our history has become even more that. So, you know, the, the definitions that we have today are clues as to who in society has been charged with helping birthing women. They're clues. And the words like postpartum post is after, postpartum is birth. So it's always been this trying to look at finding a timing for when this woman has these experiences after she's parted from her child. So we use Latin words because that's what medicine uses. Natal, partum. Um, in the UK, I've got a lot of great advocate friends and fellow researchers in the UK. It's postnatal. Hmm. But again, the language is medical language. And I didn't 
take it one step further. I'm like, I'm what I'm trying to do with my own language is to not only use the word mom, mother, or maternal, but to say women. Mm-hmm. Because it speaks to what we were just talking about of going invisible, you know. If you're if you just say I'm a mom, it ends there, you know. And so it, at least for my small tiny piece where I can encourage others and write about it, I want to try to say women who are mothers. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's good. That's that's really and just changes, like you said, you're changing the conversation and changing the way that we talk about that. And I even had in my own uh, writing and things I've done, somebody called me out once. They were like, why do you call yourself a mom and a wife first? And then list all of your certifications. Men don't do that. (laughs) I was like, don't get me started. That's interesting. I, I don't know. Like, that's just, that's just what I do. And, and, and I've only done it a few times. And I think, yeah, th- there's just a different conversation to be had there, I think. And for you it's, to, to, be, to be open to hearing that and then chewing on it, digesting it and thinking about what's going on. And for the very first time recently, I added being a mom to my CV, my professional CV. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, I was applying for a job that I thought I was a shoe in for. And I put it on my CV and the job went to a man. Wow. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying huh. not to draw correlation to that, but, you know, men are able to be in academia or the, the workplace full mm-hmm. time. Women yeah. have to take time out of their everyday life. Think about those statistics coming out about COVID. Mm-hmm. All of the women in the last uh, economic quarter, all of the people in the workforce who left, we're women, we're, we're staying home for childcare and caring for our ailing parents. And school. <laughs> and Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that's hard. I was hoping, you know, I, I hoped a lot of things in the last year, but that would open up conversations. But I really was hoping that since everybody is starting to work from home and even men were having their children show up in Zoom videos, you know, I thought that maybe there would be some adjustments and flexibility, but it does, it's still kind of stuck in the old ways. If, if you're on a Zoom call and a, and a dad has a, a, a kid in the background, he's a progressive thing. Isn't he great? He's just so, he's there taking care of his kids. He's just one. For us, it's every day. Yep. Normal every day mm-hmm. that we're twirling plates. You know, I work with, I'm lucky to work with a team of two women who are constantly having to do this dance. I, I don't think that it would be really wrong, but I don't think that uh, women get the same accolades as a man does for yeah. doing both yeah. here and work. And, I, and, and that's, and that's good. And that, I mean, that ties in so well, going back to even the the conversation around back to the stigma, right? It's, it's a lot of it has to do with the fact that we, well, this is just what you do. This is just what you experience or the baby blues. Maybe we could talk about that. Like mm-hmm. what, what's the difference between, you know, oh, it's the quote baby blues and what's really a diagnosable condition. And, and are we harming women by calling it the baby blues? Oh, great question. Um, thank you for that. That's a really good question. The baby blues are, we call it the baby blues, another language conversation, but it is a real thing. 
up to 80% of women have a dramatic mood fluctuation within the first couple of days after having their baby. That mood fluctuation is in large part, if not all, due to the fact that the brain is suddenly shrinking back down to its pregnancy mm. volume, that the pituitary gland is shifting from producing three times the amount of estradiol to now even more uh, progesterone to make breast milk. So our brain is doing this full-on morphing. And as a result, 80% of us feel tearful out of nowhere. It doesn't make sense. Or, uh, or uh, they're sad or just what we would call emotional. So the moods are more prominent, more dra dramatic. But in that 80%, it, it clears up. It goes away. But the body heals. The brain gets back to homeostasis. The body gets back to homeostasis. And those kinds of mood even out. But for one in seven, that's different than what will occur in about a month to six weeks. And that is the onset of a full-blown major depressive episode. Or also very, uh, I, I don't want to say that I don't want to not give attention to anxiety disorders, postpartum mm -hmm. panic disorder, postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, and bipolar disorder. Bipolar, we know from the genetic research that childbirth is a known uh, established onset event for a mom who has a family history of bipolar disorder, may not have ever had any symptoms herself. Childbirth is a trigger and can frequently manifest in that first three days to week. I was trying to sleep and feeling great. It's that this kind of increased elevation of mood and increased elevation of energy. Hmm. And unfortunately, what happens is that if if she's um, frequently, we will start to treat somebody who has those symptoms as if she's having postpartum depression. And some of those medications make Ooh. that worse. Yes, that's dangerous. Yeah, I've I've been one of I've been that person before being put on an SSRI that sent me into a hypomanic manic episode. So oh. I that that is a very scary situation. But again, it goes back to if you don't know how to talk about it and you don't explain your prior family history, somebody might not know it's there. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is something I haven't heard talked about a lot is, is the incidence of, of bipolar disorder happening or being triggered after childbirth. That's, that's important. And, and I do want to ask a little bit about um, PTSD and trauma, because I will say with my third birth, I had a crazy panic attack right when I was about to give birth. And I'm not, I typically don't have panic attacks, but it was when I chose to get an epidural and that's a whole other conversation that I'm not judging anybody for not or judging anyone who does. But um, I did choose to get an epidural because I have very long labors and it helps me relax. And as that was happening, I had a horrible panic attack because the epidural I had in my second pregnancy went wrong. And oh, I, I had, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I had some trauma and I had a panic attack. And 
So trauma during, and I, I will say, I know somebody else who her water broke, she was induced and had to have an emergency C-section because the heartbeat stopped. And so again, going back to expectations, we think we know what's going to happen, or then you have the mom that can't breastfeed or isn't producing enough milk. And then she, so there's trauma associated with all of this. So how does healing from the trauma <laughs> differ from treating the postpartum depression? It's added to it. It becomes comorbidity. It's one on top of another. And either you have a high chance of not being recognized, not being screened for. I'm so sorry for your experience. I'm unfortunately not surprised because it, it happens so frequently. Um, there's good research out about traumatic childbirth, but, and we know that, you know, it, there's increased prevalence. But the line between PTSD from a birth and the onset of a mood or anxiety disorder, fuzzy. It's like in my case, I had a family history of depression. I had personal history of depression. I told my provider I had uh, I had that history and had been on medication, went off medication to have my son, and then had a traumatic childbirth. Now, would I have gotten PPD if I hadn't had that? I don't know, but I do know that the next time I had a baby, I got everybody on board. You know, I addressed that epidural issue. Mm. I got, uh, I say this with love and affection. I got a shrink. I got a OB. I had an elective cesarean. Thank you very much because there was no way in hell I was going to do mm -hmm. that again. Mm -hmm. I had an OB who talked to the shrink and talk to my therapist. Yeah. And I went in like the Justice League, man. There was <laughs> no way I was going to go through that again with my daughter. And great birth, no postpartum. I was on medication throughout my pregnancy with her. And that was back in 2003 when you just didn't really talk about being on medication in pregnancy. Right. So my OB at the times only to bring my own to the hospital so that she wouldn't have to write it on the on the uh, medication form because she knew that the nurses would probably give me a hard time mm -hmm. about being on Zoloft mm -hmm. and breastfeeding. So I brought my own. But again, that was a provider who educated herself by working across disciplines with the psych psychiatrist from UCLA. So the trauma was avoided. You know, trauma is at the heart of a lot of the work that I do. And I think on some level, I'm afraid to say this, but I'm going to go for it. I think on some level, every childbirth is traumatic. Yeah. Every single one. Yeah. It's not that we all develop PTSD, but I think the name, I mean, the word trauma back to medical language is what means wound. We use that word liberally when we're talking about physical injury. Last time you went to the ER, you had to had some sort of injury. Acute trauma means an acute wound. You're bleeding out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, something has hit you or you've it, it had something to have that wound. And it's used the same way in the psychiatric language, but, but we just don't allow each other to say. Maybe it's because it's not visible. You know, I don't have a broken arm that you can see, but something just occurred to me, my body, my reality that, has broken me. Yeah. I no longer feel safe. I no longer feel like the world is safe or predictable. And I know because I just had this experience that I'm not safe here. 
Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, gosh, talk about a shift in everything that you know of or think to expect, like it's, it's never going to be that way. And, and so I think that you're right. I think every childbirth, and I'm just thinking about people I've talked to friends, family members, my own experiences have, they've all been traumatic in some way, not the same for everybody, of course, but it's in some way that, that we do need to talk about and we do need to heal from. Yes. And that we are remarkable people who heal um, and rise. And I, I was talking to somebody recently about pain differences in men and women. Um, and, you know, if you're a woman, you have your body do unexpected things every month, whether you like it or not. Right. <laughs> And it's ugly sometimes, and it's beautiful sometimes, and it comes with physical feelings and psychological adjustments. We get to practice doing that. And we're okay. We have to stay home. Sometimes it's worse than others. But we keep going. Same for birth. It's like that on steroids. And for some, it evens out and there is healing. We all end up being healing or healthy at some point. Our wholeness, not necessarily. If we, we're still walking around hemorrhaging hmm. from what happened to us. Yeah. And I don't mean literally hemorrhaging, I mean psychologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you do, and one of the powerful chapters in your book is, is when you do discuss or you share the stories of the transformation that the women went through even after this trauma, even after the darkness. Um, maybe you could share a little bit about how some of these women were transformed, even though they had these terrifying experiences, there was hopeful transformation. And so maybe you can explain some of that. I'd be happy to. Uh, When I went into the research, I was interested about learning about these kinds of women because I was an advocate and I was a doula and I was meeting uh, people who had gone through these experiences with postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis, they were doing incredible things. And I wanted to know, what is that happen? That's before I got my PhD. So part of the reason I got I went back to, to do doctoral work and to do research in this area, is I was really curious about what it is that humans have this ability to thrive, if not something beyond survive. So I decided that I wanted to ask women who had done this. And what it came down to is that I was looking at it from the frame that we all kind of look at it, that postpartum depression is a depression. Mm -hmm. And then when I started interviewing these women and getting to know the literature, it became really clear that the postpartum depression was a trauma. It was it went untreated and they had symptoms of PTSD. When they were remarkable stories, like, oh, you know, 80% of them were volunteering. Uh, they changed careers. They went back to school. They left the relationship that wasn't healthy. They started exercising. They became changed completely wrote a book we're running nonprofit and it was that the experience itself was done enough for them to need to reassemble themselves in a different way once they got treated every single one of the women in my book ended up having to get treat, 
treatment herself through multiple failures. Once the treatment, and in most cases, it was medication or medication and therapy. Once the symptoms went away, they saw what they had been through and they felt how they were on the other side of something. And that vision, that growth of having survived created the causes for them to be what they had never thought of hmm. and uh, become champions of them, themselves and their world. And what, what I ended up learning was how close to post-traumatic growth this is. So there is a thing called post-traumatic growth, Hideshi and Calhoun, where we know that for some people who go through a traumatic event, for some, that it creates the causes for incredible change, transformation, and I will use the word growth, in specific domains. Mm. People are more compassionate. Yeah. They feel like they have more empathy than they did before. They're less judgmental. They do better self-care, which is a hard one for women. They'll prioritize themselves where they didn't before. They feel a sense of connection to the world at large that they didn't before. And they that they have a purpose that that event created another purpose that they want to work really hard to help other women. Hmm. Have not have that happen. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. And you know, and I, I love that because that's why I have the podcast anyway, you know, is because of the events in my life that I've had to overcome. And, and I, I want to help people. And so like your, your book and your message, what, what do you hope that women will receive from this? And what do you hope conversations will be going forward? Because I think that there, there is a shift that needs to happen and, and we can all do this together and make this happen. But what's your hope? That women will um, get the language, be able to vote with their fighter and say, I got this, help me. And to be able to do it in a way where the provider understands because right now the way it's set up is an OB and a woman in the room at the same time. And the OB knows language of depression from a scientific place, a mom doesn't, right? There's stigma. So you can't as easily say, my stomach hurts or have a fever. That communicates to the provider what they need to look at to help you. I'm hoping that women and girls, older women, because we also drop the ball after menopause mm -hmm. on our women who are older. Yeah. I'm hoping that we, we arm ourselves with that language. I thought recently, Erin, about creating like a guidebook or a glossary. <laughs> if you could just have a glossary to walk into the doctor's office with and say, you know, let me turn it. Okay, I have this. It's called anhedonia. It means that I don't really want to be here. And I don't like doing what I used to like doing. And then they can figure it out. Mm. So I'm hoping that um, that and I hope that my my work specifically turns that up a little bit in terms of mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we got to get this right. It shouldn't be. I, the first edition was five years ago. I shouldn't have come five years later and see that the prevalence is still the same. We're doing something wrong. So if you could give, this is a question I love to ask people, if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would that be? Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to be smart. Don't be afraid to learn and get 
knowledge beyond what you've been told you're able to handle. Yeah, don't be afraid to be smart. <laughs> Every single human being has that in them. But I think that would be my advice is take have the courage to get the language, get that knowledge, fire forward, make sure that you're not harmed. Yeah. Yeah, that's empowering for sure. Now, where can people get your book, um, your website? Give us all your good information. Well, my website is walkerlab.com. Shout out to Maria at Mama Mosaic, my amazing sister in in arms and publicist. So I will say walkerlab.com and then my books on Amazon. And, um, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Like I said, I enjoyed it a lot. Good. I'm so glad it was just fun. I mean, it just makes me think I like when I think about things in different ways. And I like when the way that I think about things is, is challenged and your book just brought so many things to light for me. This conversation brought different things to light for me. So thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.